Thank you, David, Grace, Shelby, and Julie. Um, you guys don't know, but that was actually a great illustration for me to use in my sermon, but I didn't know that they were doing that. So there'll be a different illustration in place of that. Um, but remember this. There were, in fact, multiple melodies, not just melody and harmony, but multiple melodies playing at the same time, making one song. And that is what we are going to find in the Bible today if I do my job. With, um, without any more ado, let me begin with a question. How well do you know your genealogy? How far back can you trace your family tree? Have you had your DNA tested, analyzed to determine your ancestry? Let's say you have. And let's say that you have all of these names that fill in the tree going back hundreds, even thousands of years. What does all that mean? For some, it means connecting with family heritage and feeling a part of something bigger, a culture, perhaps, a nation. It could affirm an identification with a group of people from a certain place. For me, it would be pretty exciting to know that I have any roots outside of Northern Europe within, say, the last millennium. I expect I do, but it would be nice to know. Let's say you have all this data. What does it mean if you discover that one of your ancestors is a criminal or perhaps a war hero, maybe an abuser or a slave or a famous king? What I mean is, what would that say about you about who you are, about what you represent. To put it another way, how significant is your genealogy in determining what you will achieve? In a word, nothing. Nothing more than you know right now. And I don't think I'm merely playing the part of an individualistic American here. And I don't mean to discourage searching out those lost connections. I really do think there's value in knowing where you come from. But as far as what you are meant to do with your life, you don't gain any real insight from your DNA. You already know what you need. You're made in the image of God, and you're a sinner. All I'm saying is that as much as we like that knowledge, that connection to our past, such information is not deterministic. If we were to find out that you're a long-lost descendant of George Washington, that doesn't mean you make a good leader, much less that you're destined to be the president of the United States. And George Washington, who was wary of establishing a dynasty, would have been the first to tell you that. Nevertheless, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, much was made of his genealogy. 
both on Joseph's side and on Mary's. Look at Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. Why? Well, I'm going to argue that we could say simply that Jesus' genealogy is uniquely significant, unlike ours, because of the passage in front of us today. In other words, Jesus' heritage is important because Jesus is fulfilling long-held expectations, tracing back especially to David, because Jesus is the promised son of David who would be king. And if you'll stand with me, we're going to take a little journey through 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17, but I'm going to land on verses 12 through 17 especially, so I'd like to begin by reading those six verses now. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to know you better. Use your word this morning to bring to our memories the images and the stories that reveal your nature and will and work. May we understand with more and more clarity what it meant for you, Lord Jesus, to be born the son of David. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As much as I would love to go through this passage verse by verse and squeeze out as much insight as I can, instead, I'm going to attempt to do two things. First, I want to convince you to read the Bible and read it from a certain perspective. More on that in a moment. Second, I want to apply this approach in sweeping fashion over this passage in front of us. My hope is that this will give you much to think about and to talk about and to celebrate as we consider the arrival the advent of the Messiah. So what is this perspective I want you to take on as you read the Bible? In short, I want you to trust the biblical author, especially that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore represents God's perspective. And I want you to approach a passage like 2 Samuel 7 as if the author is teaching you how to read the story 
in the way that he's telling the story. What I mean is that the author is not writing in a vacuum, but is knowledgeable, intimately knowledgeable with the story thus far. Consider what we heard last week about the promised seed of Adam. How the author, who we have good reason to believe was Moses, used the word seed. And as he continued to tell the story, Moses didn't stop at every turn and say, we're still looking for the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the snake. Instead, he told the story in such a way that the word seed or offspring would continually remind us of Genesis 3.15. It's not hard to follow, actually. And one could argue that this is, in fact, a very natural way to read any story, especially this story. Noticing how it is always self-referential. What I'm saying is that this is not like some secret code, but it's the way the authors intended the story to be read because that's how they read the story, and that's how they told the story. And last week, Pastor Caleb hit the highlights of Genesis and through the five books of Moses, even passing through Joshua and Judges up to Samuel. And we're going to see some more of that today. But make no mistake, this current of expectation that began in Genesis 3 is flowing under every story. Sometimes, the author draws our attention to certain people and certain events that resonate all the way back to Adam. The author may or may not make a direct reference, but quotes and phrases serve like musical themes in movies like Star Wars rather than Pachelbel's canon. I would guess that if you were watching some TV show completely unrelated to Star Wars, and a character walked into view, and the Imperial March began to play. Dun, 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 dun. You, would, you wouldn't need commentary. You wouldn't need explanation. You would know immediately, this guy's on the dark side. Whatever that means in the context. I want you to understand, that's how biblical authors work. They're telling the story with words, not music. Still, they're playing these themes that sing to us, reminding us of other key parts of the story, and they sing all the louder, the more familiar we are with the story. I dare say, the words of the story, even. And we could all use to be more familiar with the story. All that to say, I'm giving you application up front. Read the Bible. You don't have to wait until January. Now's a good time to try some habits out before your New Year's resolutions. Experiment with some Bible reading disciplines by yourself, maybe as a family. Read the Christmas story in Luke. And listen, expect, trust Luke to tell not just the story, but to connect it with the rest of the whole story, the bigger story that is inspired by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote the rest of the story. Trust the biblical author and try to learn from him how to read the Bible. So let's try 
to learn from the author of 2 Samuel how to understand the covenant with David. So if we read 2 Samuel 7, the Lord's covenant with David, with this in mind, what do we see? Well, what I want us to see, because I'm convinced what the biblical author wants us to see, is how the Lord is speaking through the prophet Nathan here, using language gathered from throughout the history of God's people. In this way, 2 Samuel 7 functions as sort of a hub of blessing for the whole of the Old Testament. These verses collect images and blessings from the books of Moses, from the conquest of Joshua, from the time of the judges, and bring them together, routing all their paths through one person, David. The portrait of the promised son in Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the head of the snake, has been coming more and more into focus since the beginning. Through covenants and servants like Abraham and Moses, and through repeated patterns of obedience and disobedience like the Israelites in the wilderness, and, but also within the promised land, under the judges, every leader that rises up represents aspects of this promised son, this promised seed. But no one brings the enmity with the snake to an end. So let's walk through the first several verses of 2 Samuel 7 and see how many connections the author makes, especially with those earlier passages and stories. So before we begin, a little context in 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, who was the first anointed king of Israel, his youngest son, the last of his sons, Ishbosheth, sets himself up as a rival king to David, who has already been anointed king by Samuel. And it causes this division in the kingdom. There's a seven year civil war of sorts, and eventually Ishbosheth's army is defeated, and David remains the sole king of Israel. David moves his former capital from a city called Hebron to Jerusalem, defeating the Jebusites in the process. And that's when he has Hiram of Tyre build him a house, that is, a palace in Jerusalem. Afterwards, the Philistines attack from the west, and David, following the guidance of the Lord, drives back the Philistines and defeats them on their home turf. And finally, David brings the ark, the throne of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Not without a hiccup. Nevertheless, when it finally happens, it's a big celebration of worship and sacrifice led by David himself. That's ending up in 2 Samuel 6. And then we read these words in 2 Samuel 7 verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So we're at this high point in the kingdom of Israel, the history of all Israel. King David is on the throne in his palace, and the Lord has given him rest. Does anything jump out at you there? Well, it would be something of an understatement 
to say that the word rest is loaded. It's a loaded term in the context of the Bible. Just a few weeks ago, we heard a sermon on the rest that would come through Jesus. Hold your horses, we'll get there. And so, in a word, the author evokes the creation story when the Lord rested, the Sabbath rest of the Ten Commandments, the recurring periods of rest under the judges, rest from all this surrounding enemies, also calls back to the enmity between the snake and the seed of the woman. The author continues. Verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So this conversation turns to the dwelling place of the ark of the Lord. When David mentions the ark and the tent, obviously we're reminded of the tabernacle and the wilderness wanderings. And if you're keeping score... We haven't even gotten to the covenant yet, but we've already collected images from the creation, the enmity with the snake, Sinai, wilderness, tabernacle, and the judges. All that on the table. Let's keep going. I pity those who are taking notes right now. But for this, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you... Build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved and with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Okay, so the Lord begins to speak through Nathan, and he sends him back to David. We could read over this statement, my servant David, and not blink, but very few are called my servant by the Lord. Moses, Caleb, and David. Moses, especially, is called my servant Moses and the servant of the Lord throughout the book of Joshua. Joshua actually ends up, at the end of the book, being called the servant of the Lord. I mean, David wants to build a temple. God is basically giving David a hard no. You're not going to build me a temple. But as a prelude, he plays the my servant theme. So it's a no, but it's not bad news. And then the Lord brings in more references to the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And that's not all. The Lord says he has been moving about, which is expressed exactly like Moses wrote about the Lord walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then the Lord brings in the judges of Israel who were commanded to shepherd the people. We're going to keep moving. I want us to feel the impact of all of these illusions, all of these images at once. Continuing in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the, great, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So the Lord calls David a shepherd over the flock of Israel. Now don't go to Jesus yet. Stay with me. This alludes to Saul, actually, who was the first anointed one prince over my people Israel. David, of course, was a shepherd called into the throne. So here I think the Lord is emphasizing how David, with his humble beginnings, has surpassed Saul. But does the expression, I have been with you, remind you of anyone? Well, God first told Abraham, I am with you, or I will be with you. Then Isaac, then Jacob, the Lord was with Joseph, then Moses, then Joshua, This is quite a list. You see, it's not just an encouraging note. It's placing David on an honor roll of servants of the Lord. I will make you a great name is the Abraham theme, but specifically the covenant with Abraham, almost quoting Genesis 12, verse 2. At this point in the passage, while the Lord continues to anchor the covenant of David in the past, the focus turns more and more towards the future. Listen, verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The book of Deuteronomy has this echo beginning in chapter 12. The people will worship and sacrifice in the place that the Lord will choose, referring to the time of rest after the conquest of the promised land. A time of rest like the one David is experiencing in 2 Samuel 7. Isn't it interesting that the Lord promises a future place even while David is sitting on a throne in Jerusalem in the midst of the promised land. What place is he talking about? I believe there's a hint that the Lord is looking much farther into the future than we might expect. And the Lord will plant his people in the place he's prepared for them. Not only does this planting imagery bring up thoughts of the garden the Lord planted in Eden, but also how the Lord promised to plant the Israelites on the mountain of God, which he made into his dwelling, even his sanctuary. Look at Exodus 15, verse 17. The violent men, like the enemies of verse 9, carry forward the continued enmity with the seed of the snake. But as verse 11 says, the Lord will give rest from all your enemies. The appointed judges in verse 12 obviously recalls the book of Judges, though the role of judge over Israel began with Moses. 
Still, the book of Judges follows a cyclical pattern. After the Lord raises up a judge to defeat the enemies of Israel, the land has rest. But that pattern sort of spirals out of control as the book of Judges goes on. You'll notice it, it breaks down as the, book continue, as the story continues, and the people get less and less rest toward the end of the book of Judges. Jephthah and Samson, two of the last judges, the prominent judges of Israel, don't bring rest. But David, his seed, will bring final rest. All this is spoken by Nathan and recorded by the author of 2 Samuel and imported into the Lord's promise to David. You see, if we read this covenant with David and treat it as a promise that David would have a king for a son, we're missing the magnitude that this statement resonates with Adam to Jesus, with the Garden of Eden and the kingdom of God from creation and fall to redemption and restoration. And what I'm trying to do, taking my cue from the word of God, is heap up all of these images and illusions in a pile. Adam and Eve, sin and snake and seed, Abraham's great name and the covenant through Isaac, Moses and the exodus and the wilderness and the Sabbath, Joshua and the conquest, the judges and rest from the enemies of God, even Saul, the prince over Israel, has made an appearance. And there's more. We just don't have the time. And then, at the end of verse 11, there's a plot twist. Remember, we began with David's plan to build the Lord a house in Jerusalem. And the Lord, not in so many words, says, no, you won't build me a house. I will build you a house. So let's slow down a bit and consider the house of David. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So back in Genesis 3.15, the promised seed began simply as a prophecy that Adam and Eve would have a snake conquering son. Then over chapters and stories and books, that simple prophecy has taken on more and more complexity but also clarity and significance. And I hope I don't need to draw your attention to verse 12, the reference to the offspring or seed of David. But notice that the Lord adds, who shall come from your body? That, in fact, sounds like what the Lord said to Abraham back in Genesis 15, your very own son shall be your heir. And then in Genesis 17, the Lord says to Abraham, kings shall come from you. Returning to 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says, I will establish his kingdom. Well, it takes a king to establish a kingdom, doesn't it? So at the same time, as if to accentuate this new key element, the Lord hones in on the image of a house. 
It's hard to know where to begin with such an image as a house. I mean, it's kind of confusing at first because the catalyst for this whole passage is that David already has a house. He's sitting in his house. It's the Lord who doesn't have a house. So what does the Lord mean by house? Well, already in the passage, it's been used to mean David's palace, the Lord's temple, and perhaps a dwelling place for the Lord. But here it takes on yet another meaning. David's house is a dynasty of kings. Listen to verses 13 through 17. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So clearly, the Lord loves wordplay. David's sons will be a house of kings. But also, David's son will build a house for the Lord. So this time, in the first, it refers to kings. In the second time, in verse, what is that, verse 13 here, it refers to the temple, the house of the Lord. We can get lost in all of the houses. But much like the anticipation surrounding the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the snake, the latter history of Israel and the Old Testament is filled with anticipation surrounding the house of David, the son of David, the Messiah king who would come. And much like the promised seed of Genesis 3 that we heard about last week, this expectation was that the promise would be fulfilled right away. And so the first candidate, the first member of the house of David, the first candidate of fulfillment of this promised king is the very next king of Israel, Solomon. Sure enough, he does build a house, the temple of the Lord. Just like David was promised. So far, so good. The dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8 is certainly one of the high points of the Old Testament, next to creation itself and probably 2 Samuel 7. In addition to building the house of the Lord, Solomon's reign is characterized by peace and wisdom and fame and wealth. Everyone is asking, is this the promised king, the son of David? I mean, you know the story, I expect. Solomon's reign doesn't end well. He marries many, many wives, and he builds idolatrous high places, and he worships false gods. He is a son of David. But he's not the king Israel's looking for. So even though he enjoyed peace and rest from all his enemies, the Lord raises up adversaries that break the peace 
and unsettle the rest of the kingdom. Perhaps this is supposed to be understood as the Lord's discipline in response to Solomon's iniquity. But it seems like more than that. Because the Lord tells Solomon the only reason he will die still on the throne is for the sake of David. And and Solomon dies. And the kingdom, once unified, is divided into north and south. So much for a dynasty. But wait, David's supposed to have a son on the throne forever, isn't he? Three times in verses 12 through 16, the Lord says the house, the kingdom, the throne will be forever. So what has happened to David's house? Well, in spite of the divided kingdom, there are actually other candidates, good kings who are descendants of David, who rule over the southern kingdom of Judah especially. Even with kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat, who were pretty good, especially compared to the kings of Israel in the north, even if they give, let's say, a temporary hope for the son of David, they don't build a house for the Lord because Solomon already did that. Later yet, kings like Hezekiah and Josiah are given positive reviews by the authors of Kings and Chronicles. Hezekiah removes idolatrous high places and destroys religious symbols that have tempted the people away from the Lord. He didn't build the temple, but he reopens it for worship. Huh? Not bad. Josiah leads another purging of Israel, the idolatry that is, in Judah. He initiates this renovation of the temple that leads to a discovery of the book of the law which apparently had been misplaced, as stunning as that sounds. So guided by the word of God, he leads the nation of Judah in this radical return to the worship of the Lord. So as great as these kings were, and as much as they seem to echo some of the Lord's covenant with David, even the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah come to an end. Israel first, then Judah Both are defeated and carried away into exile by Assyria and Babylon. Is that the end of it? Well, no. In fact, even before the exile, prophets of the divided kingdom prophesied this continued hope for a forever king to come from David's house in the future. Isaiah leads the way. He sees a root from the stump of Jesse, a branch that will emerge from the stump of the nation that has been cut down. Jeremiah also refers to this righteous branch of David who will reign as king. Amos sees the house of David like a booth in the wilderness. It's fallen down, but it will be repaired and it will stand again like a house of David. Even when Jerusalem is in ruins and there's no kingdom, Ezekiel prophesies to the exiles of a future David who would reign forever. And when the exiles return to the land in the book of Ezra, even when they rebuild the temple under the leadership of a son of David named Zerubbabel, the temple 
just isn't the same. And there isn't a kingdom, nor a throne, let alone a king to sit on it. The prophet Zechariah, who was a grandson of these uh, temple builders in Ezra's time, after the second temple is built, Zechariah picks up the image of the branch again. And he says, he shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. The covenant with David is still valid. But it becomes clear that there's a big question mark over the whole expectation of the son of David who will reign not just well, but forever. This is a big problem. Even if there's another chance that there will be this Davidic king, how can a king reign forever if he dies and is replaced by another king who may or may not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? Would you believe this brings us back to Genesis 3.15? You see, the house-building forever king of the line of David must also be a snake crusher from Genesis 3.15. Remember back in the garden, the Lord told Adam and Eve if they disobeyed and ate the fruit, they would surely die. The problem of death is going to disrupt any potential fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Unless there's a way for the Messiah King to crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and death along with it. Which finally brings us to the promised king. Now it may seem like we've journeyed quite a ways from the birth of baby Jesus. And we have. But listen, when Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... When, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the city of David. And when Magi come looking for one who has been born king of the Jews. These well-known expressions that we sprinkle through our carols all call back to 2 Samuel 7, the covenant of David. What this means is that all of those lines of prophecy and blessing that were loaded into the covenant of David are imported into the announcement that Jesus is the king born in Bethlehem. Even the title Messiah, translated Christ in the New Testament, is a reference to the anointed kings like David. You see, all too often we expect prophecy as an isolated statement. So where the Messiah will be born? Bethlehem. Who his father will be? David. What he will be and do? A king who brings salvation. All these are true. And we, we see how Jesus fulfills all these things. And we're done. But we don't as often consider where they come from, even in the story that God has given us. We think of prophecy as this verse fulfilled in that verse. And for sure, that is true. 
at times. But it would be more faithful to the way the Lord has told the story, to the way that the Lord speaks in his word that the story is fulfilled in the person. Again, yes, there are verses we can point to that clearly identify Jesus as the Messiah. What we need to embrace is seeing Jesus in the story. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take 2 Samuel 7 once again, and as best as I can do in the next few minutes, I'm going to flesh out how Jesus, who was declared to be the son of God, or son of David, and then the son of God, is the promised king. Though maybe not in the way David or the rest of Israel expected. Here we go. This is a taste of what it means that Jesus is not just a son of David, but the son of David. The baby born in Bethlehem will be a new Adam. He will succeed where Adam failed. He will be obedient where Adam disobeyed. He will listen to his father's will and not to the reasonings of the snake. He will be a new Abraham. He will be the father of multitudes, a great nation built of all who put their faith in him. He will have a great name, a name above every name, and at his name, every knee will bow. And he will be a new Isaac, born miraculously, the son offered in sacrifice. He will be a new prophet like Moses. He will deliver his people from slavery to sin and give them a law of love to separate his people from the nations. He will be a leader like Joshua. He will even share the same name, meaning God saves. And he will lead his people not in the conquest of a worldly kingdom, not with sword and arrow, but in victory over the spiritual forces of darkness in this fallen world. He will take his people to a new and greater promised land. He will go and prepare that place for us, the place where the Lord will dwell with his people forever. He will truly be a son to the Father, the angel Gabriel tells, tells Mary he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, therefore, will be no end. Therefore, when he's baptized, the Lord will call from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He will be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He knows his sheep and they know him and they will listen to his voice. He will give rest, abiding rest. He will call all who are weary with sin and with the burden of guilt and he will say, come to me. I will give you rest. As a victorious king sitting at the right hand of God, he will give his kingdom rest from all the surrounding enemies, especially sin, and death. When the temple of his body is destroyed, he will rebuild it in three days. And he will build a house for the Lord, the church, out of living stones like you and me. He will not commit iniquity, but with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men, he will suffer for our iniquity. 
Indeed, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so his house and his kingdom will be established forever. Do you see the promised king who, in the words of Paul, was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead? Jesus Christ, our Lord, will you worship the son of David? Let's pray. King Jesus, we do want to know you. And as we look back at David and the stories and blessings that you heaped onto your covenant with him, we are overwhelmed once again at the person and work of Jesus. You are the snake crusher and the house builder. We're reminded of the wonder of the expectation of that first advent, but the story isn't over yet. Yes, Lord, the son of David has come. You have come, but we are now in a new season of advent, awaiting the second advent of the son of God. May our anticipation not droop and fade. Lord, renew our hope, heighten our anticipation. May we cry out in our heart, hearts, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in the name of the Son of David, the Messiah King, we ask it. Amen.